Our text this morning is uh, from Ephesians chapter 6, and uh, verses 10 through 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Father, we're about to engage in a little spiritual warfare here ourselves. And Satan will send uh, his spirits to pick up the, the seeds that fall to the ground because uh, the hearts that hear them are a stony path. And he wants to snatch those away. And I, I just pray, Father, that he would not be able to do that. I pray that you would bind him concerning this church, concerning these people, and concerning especially this hour. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we began to look at the text that we just read from in Ephesians chapter 6, and we discovered that if we belong to the Lord uh, at all, that we are in, therefore then, a spiritual war. That to be a Christian is to be in a spiritual war from the moment that Jesus plucks you out of Satan's kingdom and brings you into the kingdom of light. You're in a spiritual war. And that is important to emphasize in our day because there are lots of Christians that don't realize that they're in a spiritual war. And so therefore they're not effective. That's one of Satan's first strategies is to keep you ignorant of the fact that you are in a spiritual war. And he's therefore, if he's able to do that, he's much more able to control you then and to defeat you and to stunt your growth and to lead you in all sorts of sin and all sorts of destructive heresies because you won't be defending yourself from his attacks and you certainly therefore won't be attacking any of his works. But then, if that strategy fails... Satan has a multitude of backup strategies. It's interesting, isn't it, that Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 11 talks about, quote, the schemes of the devil. And again, in, in 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11, Paul again, speaking of Satan, says, we would not be outwitted by Satan because we are not ignorant of his designs. And uh, some translations tra translate that his devices or his schemes. The word translated as schemes in Ephesians 6.11 is the Greek word methodia, from where we get our English word method. The devil has methodia. In other words, the devil is a Methodist, and he is He's got methods to his madness. That's what the early Methodists, that's why they got the name. They, they came along and said, you know, we, they were called the Holy Club, and, and they said, we, we think that there are ways of actively pursuing sanctification that are systematic, and, uh, that, and, and that if you, with the help of the Spirit of God, if you apply these methods, you will grow in Christ. 
and they were derisively called Methodists. And they said, well, that's a pretty good name for us then. We'll just call ourselves the Methodists. Well, the devil is a Methodist. He's got systems. He's got schemes. Now, why is that important? Because the scripture is teaching us here that Satan has a playbook, that he has what we might call standard operating procedures. He has methods. And we can discover these methods by careful observation of our own experiences and the experiences of others. These schemes and these strategies, therefore, can be known, understood, and defeated by wise, spiritually effective countermeasures. And that's why I held up that book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Satan has devices, says the, says the author. He has schemes, he has methods. Here are the countermeasures. And this leads us to notice something important if we're at all paying attention. This passage teaches us that Satan has a playbook. He has a set of strategies he employs repeatedly over and over again. In several places, Paul mentions orders of celestial beings. You might recall the, the language about rule and authority and power and dominion in Ephesians chapter 1. Colossians 1.16, which was our call to worship, speaks of thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. And these are angelic orders of being. These are, in the angelic world, both the elect angels and the reprobate angels, the, it, there are different orders or ranks of angelic being. Presumably, these are administrative in character. They refer to areas of oversight and areas of responsibility. So in the same way that God delegated to human beings the care of the earth, he has delegated other things to angelic beings in the same way. And when they fell, that they still had their areas of responsibility and frankly control and power, though much diminished. In the same way that when we fell, we still had the responsibility, but much less control and power. Uh, both uh, Mark 9 and, and Matthew 17 teach us uh, about a story of a man who brings his son to the disciples to have a demon cast out of him. And the disciples try, and they're unable to cast it out. And this surprises and perplexes the disciples because up until this point, they had been entirely successful at casting out demons. And so they're like, huh, this is a tough case. We need to bring this to Jesus. And they, they bring it to G, the boy to Jesus, and Jesus casts out the demons. And afterwards, says the text of Scripture, the disciples came to him privately and said, now why couldn't we get the job done, Jesus? And Jesus says, this kind only goes out by prayer and fasting. That word kind is the Greek word genus which we import directly into English scientific language to talk about different kinds of animals and different kinds of plants. In a similar way, in Acts 16, Paul encounters a slave girl who has a spirit of divination, or the actual Greek is a python spirit. And she makes a great deal of money for her owners by telling fortunes, we're told. 
and she's following Paul around as he's ministering. And, uh, and, and, and she's telling everybody, these men are delegates of the Most High God who are teaching you the way to be saved. Apparently, that wasn't welcome because after a couple of days of it, Paul gets annoyed and turns around and rebukes the demon that's inside of her, casts it out, and then she's, uh, she's free from this thing. And the slave owners go, well, there goes all our money. You know, the demon left her and, and with it left the... Uh, the ability to tell the future, so there goes all our money. So in other words, this is a special species of spirit. In 1 Kings chapter 22 and verse 22, the Lord asks for a demonic spirit to go up and to entice King Ahab and uh, entice him to take a destructive and a ruinous course of action. And one spirit after another comes forth with a proposed plan. And God says, I'm not crazy about any of those until one comes up and says, I will do it. And God says, uh, okay, how will you do it? And the spirit says, I will go and I will be a lying spirit in the mouths of the prophets and entice Ahab that way. In other words, he specialized in lies in the same way that the Python spirit specialized in fortune telling. Demonic beings, therefore, we can conclude, can be categorized into something like species. There are different kinds of them. They have uh, different strengths and they seem to have areas of specialization or aptitude. They, they need to be dealt with in different ways, by different strategies. And that according to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Other kinds are just cast out with a word. But this kind only goes out by prayer and fasting. The, the big point behind all of these smaller points is this that the spirit world is basically a realm of order that works by laws and principles, just like the visible world is. And that is because it was created by the same God. 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 33 says clearly that God is a God of order and not of confusion. So God created the spiritual realm with an order, a discernible order in the same way that he created our world with butterflies and bald eagles. And they're different. And they have different jobs. And they have different characteristics. Well, it's that way in the spirit world too. And we can learn the order and the laws of the spirit world in more or less the same way that we learn the laws of the visible world. The Bible gives us quite a bit of information that's reliable and it's trustworthy, but we should also pay attention to our spiritual experiences. And when we pay attention to those, we will notice patterns. And we can say, aha, I think it might be this way. Let's see. Or aha, I think it might be that way. Let's try this and see what God does. That, that God loves that interplay, that, that interaction, that he loves to give us principles and then tell us to apply logic and reason to those principles and come up with uh, ideas about how things actually are. And if you're uncomfortable with that, then you're going to be uncomfortable with things like the doctrine of the Trinity. Because that's exactly how we got the doctrine of the Trinity. You take all the little bits and pieces of information in the scriptures, and you reason carefully from first principles, and you hash it out with a bunch of other smart people who are praying too, and, and, and you figure out, okay, this is how we can accurately describe God. Here's the doctrine of the Trinity. God wants us to use our mind. He wants us to investigate. He wants us to interact. He wants us to be wise 
but he also wants us to be those who are taking dominion over things around us. Now, let me give you an example. Um, I, uh, I've, I've noticed that uh, when I fast, it tends to turbocharge my prayers. They, they seem to be, in general, answered much more quickly and dramatically. Now, the Bible teaches us about fasting. It teaches us to fast. It doesn't command it in this era in the same way that God did in the Old Testament where they had days appointed to fast. Now we can fast whenever we want, and we should fast. But what we learn, because when you start fasting, the first thing you're like, okay, how is this doing me any good at all, God? I'm just hangry, right? I'm just a cranky Christian now who wants to yell at my family because I need a burger. How is this helping me, God? And God says, be patient. Pay attention to your experience. Keep at it. Be persistent. And what, what you discover is, well, one of the things you may discover is what I discovered and that your prayers then are therefore turbocharged somehow. They are much more effective. They're answered much more quickly. Now, I cannot explain that completely, but I have developed some ideas that I'm playing with. I've noticed, for instance, that when I fast, my mind becomes exceptionally clear and focused after a few days, and I'm able to think better, and I'm able to concentrate more. It seems like it slows down for me to a to a tolerable pace. Uh, I, and just as an example of the, how profound this can be, I used to play chess every week with a friend of mine when we lived in Cincinnati, and he was just a better chess player than me. And we would play, and he would beat me 80 to 90% of the time until I started fasting. And I would come into those chess matches after having fasted for three or four days, and, and I would beat him. 80 to 90% of the time. And then I'd come back the next week after I'd broken the fast, and there he was. He'd whip me again, and it was right back to like it was. Well, well when, I, when I realized, okay, there's something going on here, just paying attention to my experience with the Holy Spirit's help, there's something going on here. I wonder if that ability to concentrate is what is making my prayers more effective. And I started investigating fasting and how fasting was used in Christian history. And, and I think I now even understand the physical processes behind this. Because your brain can run on two different fuels. Normally your brain runs on glucose or sugar, but after a few days of fasting, your body runs short of glucose. And so your body switches fuels for your brain to something called ketones. If you've heard of the keto diet, that's what you're trying to get. You're trying to get into a state of ketosis. Well, it turns out that ketones are by far your brain's favorite fuel. It just works better when it's running on ketones. And so I believe then, okay, that ability to concentrate more that, that, that happens when I fast for a few days which I never would have learned unless I just gutted it through for the first few days, that, that, that ability to think more clearly has a direct effect on my prayers, seems to. And, and I believe that that's at least part of the reason why my prayers are more effective when fasting than they are when I'm, I'm not. And so I began to think about, okay, maybe it's the concentration. Maybe it's the state of mind that's important. And then I thought, well, there are other ways to put your mind in a mode where it's calm and alert and focused. For instance, 
meditation on the scriptures will do it. Or meditation on God's attributes will do it. So the state of your mind matters. That's also, incidentally, uh, why intoxication is bad. Because it alters the state of your mind. And it allows you, particularly if you think about things like um, uh, certain drugs, like uh, um, uh, hallucinogens, those are very spiritually dangerous. There's a reason why pagan people all over the world have used hallucinogens to touch the spirit world in a way that is apart from Christ and apart from God. And that's because it works for that. And so you, you find yourself saying, okay, the, the, my, my mind and where my mind is somehow is important for making contact with spiritual reality in an effective way. So I began to experiment with ancient Christian forms of prayer that seemed to lend themselves to a quieter, more focused mind, at least for me. And my experiment is still in progress, but I have to say, since I've begun this experiment, I have grown more spiritually in about the last 15 or 16 months than at any other time in my life. So it seems to be working. How did I learn that? Well, I took scriptural principles and I put them into practice in my daily life and then I paid attention to my experience. I've learned other things. For, for example, um, I've struggled for many years with evil or troubling or harassing intrusive thoughts that I, that I thought were originating in me. And what I discovered accidentally by experience in the providence of God is that most of them actually don't originate with me. They come from outside. They are spiritual attacks. And what I discover then is when I, when I think about that and I go and I look at other Christians at other places in history, I discover that they struggled with the exact same thing. And they came to the exact same conclusion and that they had remedies for dealing with it. Let me just give you uh, an example from Pilgrim's Progress, a Puritan work from the 1600s in England. Bunyan writes this, one thing I would not let slip. I took notice that now poor Christian was so confounded that he did not know his own voice. And thus I perceived it. Just when he was come over against the mouth of the burning pit, one of the wicked ones got behind him and stepped up softly to him and whisperingly suggested many grievous blasphemies to him, which he verily thought had proceeded from his own mind. This put Christian more to it than anything he had met with before, even to think that he should now blaspheme him whom he had loved so much before. Yet if he could, not, if he could have helped it, he would have done, not have done it. But if he had not the discretion neither to stop his ear, but he had not the discretion neither to stop his ears or to know from whence the blasphemies came. And I remember that passage. I remember reading it for the first time. This is my very battered copy of Pilgrim's Progress. I've owned it for about 30 years. And uh, I used to read it very frequently. And, and I said, here's the experience that I'm experiencing. And I think this is a satanic attack. And so I began to treat it as such, and things got better. I am learning to resist him, and to silence them. Loved ones, the church is in great need of spiritual research and spiritual researchers. 
Men and women who love Christ and who love his word and who want to understand the environment in which God has placed us. We need prudent, wise, but fearless spiritual explorers. And we need others who will go back through the pages of history and read and uncover the spiritual research that's already been done by those who have come before us. Much of these things still exist, but it's locked away in dusty books that nobody reads anymore. We need scientists of the soul. We need historians of the soul. Let me me give you an example once again. Sin is not caused by demons in the sense that you could blame demons when you sin, but demons understand how to entice you into sins that you already have a a secret inclination towards. And they, they see that in your heart. They go, okay, this person is attracted to this sin, has an inclining towards this sin. And they understand then how to exploit that. They understand how to hook you into a self-reinforcing pattern of sin that's compulsive, and it's much, much harder to get out of. According to some of the early church fathers, there are some sins which seem to specially involve the activities and the influences of the demonic. And so, for instance, Justin Martyr, who died in uh, A.D. 165. So he was born about five years after the Apostle John died. He was raised by people in the church who knew the Apostle John. So very early on in Christian history. And here's what Justin Martyr says in his apology. He says that there are four areas of sinfulness that are especially demonically driven. One is sexual compulsions. One is the magic arts. Another is a desire to increase wealth and property. And the fourth one is all hatred violence. And those, said Justin Martyr, have an especially strong demonic component. And if you've ever struggled with strong inclinations towards any of those sins, you may be able to analyze your experience and you may be able to discern a time when something strong and compelling and almost irresistible came over you. And you were filled with obsessive thoughts And they were mingled with a pleasure that you derive simply from thinking those obsessive thoughts. And they gripped your mind and they focused your attention and they crowded out other things. And paying attention to those things when you're tempted to them is like drinking seawater. You think, oh, I'll just have a little drink and it'll it'll quench my thirst. I'm so thirsty. But what seawater does is make you even more thirsty and you keep drinking it till you die. That, according to the early church fathers, is demonic. So if you're going to defeat those sins in your life, then your strategy needs to include dealing with the demonic. Well, what sorts of other power does Satan possess? It, It may surprise you to learn that Satan can create violent weather when it suits him. Uh, We know that from the book of Job. God said to Satan in Job 1.12, Behold, all Job has is in your hand, only against him do not stretch out your hand. And so Satan goes out from the Lord's presence to afflict Job. 
And in verse 16 of Job chapter 1, a servant runs to Job to tell him that lightning has struck and has burned all of his sheep up and has also killed the shepherds who were tending them. And then in verse 19, we're told about a great wind that suddenly arises and sweeps from across the wilderness, what we would call today a straight line wind. And it strikes the house where Job's sons and daughters are eating and the walls collapse and everyone's killed. There was a storm at sea uh, during the life of Jesus that threatened to swamp the boat and sink Jesus and his disciples. And Bible scholars have widely understood that to be a storm of demonic origin. Jesus was making his way across the Sea of Galilee to an area inhabited by pagans known as Gadara. Today, it's what we would call the Golan Heights. And there was a cave there from which a spring flows. And that cave had been for thousands of years a pagan worship site. During Jesus' time, it was dedicated to the Roman god Pan, but before that it was dedicated to, to Baal. And they were essentially considered the same deity by the pagans. And, and they thought that that cave was the entrance to the underworld, and that cave was known as the Gates of Hades, or the Gates of Hell. So when you put the, the story together, Jesus is going across the water and he's going to the place where the gates of hell are and this storm comes up and threatens to swamp the boat. After he lands on the, on the shore, who does he meet? He meets a man who's possessed by legion. Thousands of demons inside of this man. So, and so scholars understand that, that all of this is an attempt by Satan to keep Jesus from making his proclamation about the church and the gates of hell, which will not withstand the church. And so we, we begin to see then that, that Satan can, can use the weather whenever he wants to. And, and Jesus uh, shows us in this story that he has authority not just over the wind and the waves, but also over the malevolent spirit who stirred up the wind and the waves to try and drown the Lord Jesus. What else can Satan do? Well, uh, he can cause disease. Job, if you will recall, by the permission of God, was afflicted by Satan with boils all over his skin. Jesus freed a woman who was bent over double uh, for 18 years and specifically says that this odd affliction was the, caused by a demon. For 18 years, this demon had kept this woman bent over so that she couldn't straighten up. And that's a weird spiritual possession. Well, yes, it is. But we have it clearly in Scripture from the mouth of Jesus himself that it was a, it was a demon. Not all physical disease is caused by Satan by any means, but Satan will always try and use the infirmities of the body when you have them to damage your soul. Satan will use the challenges of, your, of, of illness or disease to try and discombobulate and discourage your soul, to rob your soul of its peace and its contentment, to try and cause you to murmur against God by playing what if and what might happen and what's going to go on. And Satan is quite clear that he can do that. Satan loves to imitate God. 
And and in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13, and in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 8, uh, it teaches us that God works in the lives of His saints to produce people who take after their heavenly Father, people who will bring about God's good in the world. Ephesians 2.2 tells us that Satan works in the lives of his servants, lost men and women, to produce people who take after their father, the devil. If you are saved, Satan cannot infiltrate your soul. God won't permit it. But he can and will attack along the borders of your faith. You need to understand how serious that can be. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus tells Peter that Satan has demanded to sift the disciples like wheat. It doesn't come through in the English unless you're Southern. Because Satan says, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift y'all like wheat. So it's not just Peter that's going to get sifted. But after that, after that, he says, understand that I have prayed for you and your faith will not fail. He demands to sift the disciples like wheat. And it's only Jesus' prayers that keep, that keep Peter and the disciples in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus gives a hint of how close Peter would come to the absolute collapse of his faith and the subsequent loss of his salvation if such a thing were possible. And Jesus says in Luke twenty-two thirty-two, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now that word translated as turned again in the ESV is rightfully translated by the King James Version as when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. The word is epistrepho. It means to turn or to turn around. It's often used of our first conversion to saving faith in Jesus Christ, but it doesn't mean that here. Peter was already converted. Jesus seems to be saying here, I am about to show you that I am the one who's holding on to you and that my holding on to you is the only reason your salvation is secure. I'm going to let you come as close to losing it as is possible. If Satan obtains permission from God, he can sift you like wheat too. Have you ever been there? Have you ever, have you ever cried out, Lord, thank you that you're holding on to me right now because if it was up to me to hold on to you, I would be lost? Have you ever been there? I have. I can remember driving from Sturgis to Gillette, Wyoming to preach in a friend's church one time and on the way just being so overcome with despair and saying, Lord, I wish there was something else you'd give me to do besides be a pastor. And right now, Lord, if you weren't holding on to me, I wouldn't be holding on to you and I'd be lost. Satan brings you to that point and the Spirit of God meets you in that hour. Satan can also stupefy you. He can lull you to sleep, spiritually speaking, so that you drop your guard and you don't act when you should. He can cloud your mind and blur your spiritual vision so that the understanding and the application of God's truth becomes much, much harder. If you're really struggling to appropriate a truth of God and you know it ought to impact not just how you think, but how you feel and the decisions you make and, and how your orientation of your life, and you just can't quite get it, ask God to bind Satan. 
Because it may be that he's the one who's interfering with your vision, with your thinking. It may be that you unwittingly have created a, a little place for him to lodge and to disturb you. Begin to think about the possibility that the things you struggle with aren't just inside of you, but there are things that are outside of you as well that can be addressed through prayer. And if you want a, a, just a little bit of homework uh, to teach you, to begin to teach you how to pray about these things, go read the little book of Jude today. It'll only take you about 15 minutes. And just think about what you encounter in the book of Jude. Satan can come up and snatch the word away from you before it penetrates your heart and grows and bears fruit. Let me close, though, with a word of encouragement. Satan's power is, after all, a derived power. It comes from God, and God puts hedges, and God puts boundaries on it. God says, you may do this, but only this, and God has a reason to do that. Satan is like your sparring partner. His demons are like your sparring partner. You are to learn how to fight. And God will bring these things into your life as a new Christian so that you learn early, if you're paying attention, how to fight. Listen to, to William Gurnall from the Christians uh, in Complete Armor. He says, just as God decides how much power Satan may have, he also controls how much of his power he may expand at any one time. There may be times when you feel that God has left you to fight alone. That is when your faith must do its hardest work. Hold fast to the assurance that God is watching every move of Satan and will not let him have the final victory. He can, when God allows it, rob the Christian of much of his peace and joy, but he is always under command. When God says, stay, he must stand like a dog by the table while the saints feast on God's comfort. He does not dare to snatch even a tidbit, for the master's eye is always on him. You lose much comfort when you forget that God's hand is always raised above Satan, and his loving eye is always on you. I just want to close uh, this morning with a story, a true story. I've mentioned before uh, our friends in Sturgis who were missionaries to the, uh, to the Cheyenne River Indian Reservation. And uh, there was a period of time where they brought a native couple in that they were trying to help get off the reservation and, and get situated and start a new life. And, and uh, it didn't work out. This couple had a, a lot of trouble and a lot of things going on. And I just will tell you that the Indian Reservation, spiritually speaking, for many reasons, is an insanely dark place. I've never felt spiritual oppression uh, like I have on that Indian Reservation, especially in certain areas of it. And, and so when, when this couple came, they lived with them for a little while, and they, and they had to remove them from the home. When the couple left, something stayed behind, something spiritual. And they began to have these strange phenomena around the house. And they concluded pretty quickly that it was not natural, that it was supernatural, that, that something had stayed, that had jumped off like a flea jumping off of a dog and had stayed in the house. And, and they were scared. The, the wife in particular was very scared. And, and they said, would you, you know, would you come over and help us and pray for us? I said, absolutely. And, and we, I began talking to them about spiritual warfare and, and helping them understand it. And they had not gotten any, uh, any training in this. And so all they needed to do was hunker down and be afraid. 
and cry out to Jesus. I said, you've got authority over this thing. And, and uh, I said, I'm going to pray for it, but I think you ought to learn how to do this too. You're going to be ministering on the Indian reservation. You're going to be dealing with this over and over again. And, and I prayed, uh, and it, I don't think it was effective. I know it wasn't effective. And, and uh, they, they called back the next day and said, you know, it's, it's still going on. It's still here. I said, I think God left that here so that you could learn how to deal with it. Because it wasn't a very strong one. It wasn't doing horrid things. It was just harassing. I said, I think you need to learn how to do this for your own ministry's sake. And they said, okay. And they started praying. It took about a week. And they figured out how to do it. And they were able to cast it out. These sorts of things are real. They're, they're absolutely real. And if you don't think they're real, that's proof that, they're, that you've uh, swallowed at least some of their lies. They're real. On the authority of Jesus, they're real. And your battle is not against the people that these things are animating. They're against the things themselves. And you, Christian, have authority over them in the name and in the power of Jesus. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. For you are my rock and my redeemer. If anything I've said this morning is untrue, is unhelpful, cause it to be forgotten. If I've said anything that's true and good and right and helpful, Cause it to be remembered and burned into our minds. In Jesus' name.